I had trouble trouble shutting down my soccer analytical brain. It just kept running and running and running. That sounds more like a brag than anything else. <laughs> no, it's not. It's uh, it's my brain um, sometimes fixates on crap. In this case, it happened to fixate on FC Dallas. Many other times, it fixates on other things that are very stupid and meaningless. And yet, you know, sometimes it's hard to shut it down. That's definitely crap. Speaking of which, well, crap. <laughs> Thanks for showing up for uh, Third Degree, the podcast, episode number four, and the end of the 2018 FC Dallas season. My name is Peter, and I am transmitting from the brand new Hall of Fame bar where I got myself locked in overnight, and I've been drinking straight out of the beer tap until this very moment, and I'm very drunk. Uh, We're doing panel style tonight for this very special episode, so we'll start with our special guest, from Gold.com and also the Dallas Morning News, and the only bilingual, unless you consider Dan's English uh, accent another language, John Arnold joins us. Hello, Jonathan. Hola, como estas? Bien, y tú? <laughs> Muy bien, gracias. Great to be. That's all I know. <laughs> yeah, that's where I ran out. <laughs> uh, and uh, also one of our good buddies at Third Degree, and the one guy that gives us super credit because he is British, he is Dan Crook. Hello, Dan. Hola. <laughs> Una cerveza, that... por favor. <laughs> you said that with a uh, British accent. Spanish with a British accent. That's pretty cool. That's how we do it. We just say things louder and expect everyone to understand. As an American, I always find it fascinating when I hear people of other languages speaking in a in a uh, accent of another language. So like Japanese in, in Indian or something. I think that would be pretty funny. Should try it sometime. Okay, maybe, maybe that's just me. And uh, bringing up the rear is none other than our uh, fearless founder and uh, editor of Third Degree, Buzz Carrick. Hi, Peter. Whatever. Well, today I'm calling in from uh, Colo Colo Stadium in Chile, where FC Dallas once watched Graziani play Colo Colo, and Tim Wabansu almost started a riot because he was wearing a yellow shirt. What does that mean? Why were they riding because of yellow shirt? Because the team that Graziani was playing for uh, was wearing yellow. So as we were leaving the stadium as a collective, a bunch of the Colo Colo fans were on the other side of a little fence and they saw Tim was yellow shirt and they went crazy and started throwing rocks and it was a lot of fun. Man, did I never, ever believe in my life did I I would miss Ariel Graziani as I did last night. I know, right? All right, guys. Well, that takes us to FC Dallas 1, Portland Timbers 2, season over. Uh, Buzz, I will ask you this question. Were you and I right the other day in the last episode of this podcast when we predicted that this game would be a uh, pretty much a reflection of the entire 28 season, 2018 season? In a lot of ways it was. Uh, it wasn't for the first half anyway. I thought um, like they have for the last month, Dallas played pretty well and uh, created a lot of opportunities and couldn't score, just like they consistently have done all season. and consistently did again in that game. And then, of course, once the red card came, that changed almost everything because Portland, who already is a sit-deep team, became even more of a sit-deep team. And then the game just became completely one-sided in terms of possession and on one end. And uh, Dallas ended up getting an astronomical number of chances and scoring zero goals. So up until the very end on the on the little extra one, but that is that hardly even counts, really. So uh, it was a microcosm of the whole season. So your answer is yes. Yeah, I could have said yes, but I figured you want me to explain why I was saying yes. I did. 
<laughs> okay, so we're I'm sure in the course of however long this thing goes, we're going to talk a lot of detail about the game last night. But uh, John, couldn't we just sum this whole thing up by just repeating the one word we've all said at some point over the season, which is finishing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we knew this was going to be a, a pretty close game, I guess, uh, very similar styles that the teams use. You know, obviously Dallas, a lot of the year, had talent, very good on defense. And this game, they created the chances. You certainly thought that even after that beautiful Diego Valeri free kick, that it was a game that could get back into. Um, but they just couldn't. And and especially the numbers. I mean, the numbers, I think, are a little weird because as Buzz alluded to, there was the red card and that, that changed everything. FC Dallas was, you know, going at it with all they had, which they needed to do because the season was going to and then did end. But still, if you look at the numbers, I think you see FC Dallas creating chances, having shots, putting shots on target. Uh, I thought Antonell had a really good game last night. But ultimately, it came down to the fact that FC Dallas couldn't find the back of the net. It was so much, so much of the issue for especially the latter half of the season. Just, just to follow up on that really quickly, statistically, to show that what John's talking about, over the course of this season, Dallas finished on a ratio of 9.3 shots per goal, which is the 18th worst ratio in Major League Soccer. Only the Revs, Union, Orlando, Colorado, and the crew are worse. And that 9.3 shots per goal is the eighth worst in franchise history and is the second worst under Perea. Well, I think it's. I think we could all probably go back in our Twitter accounts uh, <laughs> back to March and probably find a tweet that we each put out at some point, going, you know, finishing's probably going to be the death of this team. I know I can, and I'm pretty sure I can. I can account for Buzz, um, Dan. I think you and I have had this conversation. It really is the one most glaring problem with this team is that nobody seems to know how to finish. Uh, when the opportunities seem really ripe for it. It seems to almost have a progression. At one point, it was nobody gets in the box. Everyone's shooting from distance, and then players start getting in the box. And last night, they had, what, 10 shots inside the box, six total on target. It's, just, it's wasteful. Uh, the only real shot that I thought the team took that I really felt like had a really good chance of going in was Lamar's shot that went kind of low into the left of the Portland keeper who made a fantastic save on that shot, by the way. Um, but everything else just seemed very um, rushed and, and the, the confidence level and the finishing of this team, almost man for man, is really low. And and I'm not quite sure I can ex- I've ever been able to explain, you know, what is the cause of that? Buzz, do you have any ideas? I don't know. I, you know, last year we talked a lot after the season about how uh, a lot of the problems were shot selection. There was too many shots by holding midfielders or anybody else for that matter, but specifically holding midfielders shooting from like 30 yards out. So back then it was a lot of discussion about selection about because there was nobody in the box. The balls in there didn't get shots. All you got was this outside stuff. But this year they corrected that. They had a, most every game, but with rare exceptions, we talked about how it was at least even if or, or not a higher percentage in the box, at which point you have to just wonder. I mean, you know, it's hard to teach finishing. We've talked before about the cleanest, most clinical finisher on this franchise right now is Jesus Perea. But he's 17. You know, he's not ready to play physically and he's not ready to play mentally. There's a lot that you have to do other than just be able to shoot. Now, he'll be get there eventually, of course, we think. But. Really, it's just a mentality. There's not anybody on this team that has a shooter's or a scorer's, more specifically, mentality because Maxi has a shooter's mentality with 117 shots on the season, only getting you eight goals. But 
the only real, I guess, pure scorer, if, if you want to count that among the players, is Lamar. He at least has a knack for scoring when, when he's got eight goals on 37 shots. You know, I mean, we should play him at striker, I guess. One of the one of the fun aspects of the game last night, at least I'm assuming for a neutral or if you're a Timbers fan, is watching Diego Valeri uh, do his magic. Uh, he's certainly not 100% the player he was in previous seasons, but that free kick was amazing. And at the end of the day, I think we all were worried that the difference in this game was going to come down to uh, Portland having a difference maker uh, and Dallas not. John, do you feel like that actually played itself out to be true? Absolutely. That's essentially, you know, for Goal.com, it's a more national audience, obviously, than, than the audience of this podcast. Uh, and I wrote about Valeri and how I really feel that his sort of star power in some ways, maybe not star power, maybe maturity, experience, whatever you want to call it, he has something that no player on FC Dallas does. I don't mean that to diminish anyone from FC Dallas. I liked the fight that I saw from the team uh, in that game. I would have liked to see it, to, to have seen it a little earlier, but I thought, you know, players like Maxi, Reggie, uh, even the defenders, you know, Hedges and Ziegler, I thought were, were really putting a lot of fire into the game and, and you saw that they wanted to come back and win, but they didn't have that, that X factor that Valeria has. You said magic. That's exactly the word that Gio Savarice used. You know, he said he worked his magic and, and that's the difference. And that's the player maybe like Amaro Diaz or Kellen Acosta as well. But that's the Valeri is the kind of player as a four, as the rating, I guess, MLS MVP, a player who's been on, you know, three MLS best 11s. He's a guy who individually can make a total difference. So many times with FC Dallas, we've seen that the team is sort of uh, better than the sum of its individual parts because of how it works together, what Oscar Preja has gotten out of the team and how his system is functioning. But Valeri is a guy where even if the team isn't doing that well, he can make things happen. And, uh, and he did. I think he was absolutely the difference in a game that we knew was going to be defined by very slim margins and ended up being uh, a very close, tight-fought contest. So most people were probably surprised, and certainly uh, in the, in the, today, in the aftermath of the loss, there were lots of questions about the fact that not only uh, did Pablo Arangis not start in this game, but he wasn't even on the bench. And I think all of us were a bit surprised about that. Uh, in the press conference, he was asked uh, about it, and, and, and Perea essentially admitted that, in hindsight, he wished he had had them. Um, you know, Dan, we talk a lot about uh, the one weird th- kind of thing on the Oscar resume is this. And was last night maybe another little note to add to the file of odd choices and roster selection and big games for Oscar Perea? by leaving Pablo off last night? Certainly to a degree. Um, you know, you can look at Oscar's record in the playoffs. He kind of, he mixes up his mentality a little bit, like going into Seattle with a three-man back line and getting blown out uh, a couple of years ago. It, it was a weird notion at home to say, you know what, I want two wing backs on the bench. I also want two defensive midfielders on the bench. For a team that just that have scored well, two open play goals in since August, uh, and you've got a, you know, you've got to hit a point where you you roll the dice, and Arangiz is is that guy. Buzz, I think the general consensus before the game was the reason for him being not put in the eighteen had something to do with. 
um, uh, Pedroso's knee injury. But you even pointed out in your breakdown today that if Pedroso was healthy enough to be on the bench, why isn't he playing? Um, it, it, did we all figure out that maybe that it, that it was because of Pedroso's injury that required uh, Oscar to push other people around, and that's what caused him to fall out of the eighteen? Well, our <clears throat> pregame, as we discussed it and tried to figure out why, uh, our conclusion was that it must be a math question that when Pedroso couldn't start that you and Figueroa was in, you needed two players to kind of replace Figueroa. You needed a backup center back and you needed a left back who is a defensive backup, which is Pedroso. But then you also always want to have Ryan because you're attacking left back or even left wing. Uh, but then postgame, Oscar said that wasn't the case. He said it was just a coach's decision. Uh, on Arangis, and uh, in a way that doesn't shock me. I, I don't think that Oscar this season has developed the trust and faith and, and faith that he needs in a guy for him for him now to put him in uh, in a playoff game to call him on a playoff game. I mean, if you look back at Arangis this season, the games they started him against, the teams they started him against were Orlando, Houston, and uh, uh oh, I forgot the third one. <laughs> Uh, somebody else not very good. It'll come to me in just a Minnesota. second. Minnesota, and no, he subbed, Minnesota. He thank you. For Minnesota. Yeah, and he teams that are. It was it was uh, it was Minnesota, I believe. Uh, anyway, the point of which is that those are all teams that, if you make a mistake, it doesn't kill you, right? Because those are teams in the bottom half of the league. And then you look at the games where he came that came in off the off the bench. It was games where maybe something creative could help him, could help the team, but never a case where like I need this guy to fill certain specific responsibilities. So over the course of the season, he plays 282 minutes, which is, you know, not as much as most people would want, but in those nine games and three starts, he has zero goals and zero assists. Now I I don't have access to it, like chances created or some kind of crazy advanced metric, but on that surface alone, you think, well, maybe I kind of understand it. And if you want to compare him to Diaz, who everybody does, right? Even people are already saying he's going to be better than Diaz. Diaz in 2013, that was his first season. He joined in July. He played 10 games and made five starts, which is just a little bit more than Arangis. Played 400 minutes, which is twice as many minutes. I'll give you that part. But he had three goals and two assists. He was 22 years old, not 21. Okay, one year more experienced. But the comparison to Diaz is not there right now. It's just not. It, it, he did not have the impact. So when you look at it that way, go back and look at when Oscar played him, the impact he actually had. The Orlando game is a great example where he played eight or nine balls behind the defense into the box. Not a single one of them connected with the player. Not a single connection to the attacking third. Now, that's not all on him. A lot of that's on his teammates, too. But when, you, when, I, when, you, when I tried to go back and figure out why is there no faith, you can clearly see it the whole time. Orangis just has not had the statistical impact that you might want to put him into a playoff game with the seasons on the line. Okay. But knowing that there was a chance you were going to need some creativity, uh, if in fact you fell behind a goal or needed goals. Uh, and he even admitted this in the press conference, not having Pablo at, at his disposal ended up biting him in the butt. And I, and I, and, and I wonder, um, John, if you have any thoughts about what does that say about Perea when when we get into these big games and he makes these kind of odd 
tactical or roster decisions because I think you could fairly you could make an argument that there's one of those datings back even to his Colorado Rapid days. To me, this is a decision that he just overthought. I, I mean, I, I was stunned that Pablo wasn't on the bench. Busley's had a good case for why maybe he wasn't. But at the same time, when I look at this bench, I see a team that, that Pareja it seemed like he was ready to defend a lead. And maybe the second half collapses in the previous three games really were, were weighing on his mind because that is something that they failed to do, defend leads or, or see out results in the second half. But how are you, if you wanted to chase the game, which was a situation that FC Dallas was in last night and knew before the game that it very well could be in, your choices were essentially what he did. Toss in Lamont, okay, attacking player. Tesho, yes, attacking player. And Hollingshead, who he, he tried last night, but he's not as skilled of an attacker. He doesn't have the technical ability that Pablo has. He, he, doesn't, he isn't able to play balls and, and have the same vision that, that, that Pablo has. If you had wanted to see out the game, okay, you got Pedroso, who I guess you could bring as a, as a fifth defender if you're, you're protecting lead. Abel, who hadn't played much. I don't know how fit he was. I didn't see him train a whole lot. Um, but I guess would have helped you kind of put his foot on the ball and see out the game and, uh, and Jacori. So I, I just think that it was maybe that those second half struggles weighing on Pereja's mind. Is it fair to say more grandly, more broadly that he's had struggles in big games? Maybe so. I mean, on the one hand, yes, there are other examples you can point to, maybe going back to his Rapids days. But on the other, you know, that CCL run 2016, winning the, the U.S. Open Cup, the, the Supporters' Shield triumph, and then the Champions League uh, game that followed, games that followed, really. I thought Oscar got his tactics very right for the most part. You know, we, we would be talking about a Champions League final and maybe the first MLS team to ever do it had individual mistakes not happened in the games against Pachuca. So maybe, maybe not. I think it might be sort of reactionary, I guess, to say that because this was a decision that I think was a bad one, that Oscar consistently makes uh, bad mistakes in crucial games. Uh, this is going to sound maybe potentially like a harsh question, but let's uh, take the two goals for Portland into consideration and note that both of them involve, um, I think we can all agree, uh, mental mistakes by two homegrowns. First with Reggie reaching in uh, across Blanco and giving up the penalty or the foul, excuse me, just outside the penalty box, which Valeri finished off so smartly. And then obviously, and maybe even uh, a better case uh, for what I'm about to ask, is uh, Jesse Gonzalez's just bizarre decision to come out uh, when Ziegler appears to have everything under control. Um, it, are those... Um, evidence of why you have to be careful what you wish for when it comes to playing the kids that young players no matter their quality tend to make mistakes in in big games or at least make mistakes in games but in big games they are even more magnified uh buzz do you think that's a a fair question to ask in retrospect yeah i think it's fair i mean i think that's why coaches sign players like uh abel aguilar that's why you sign a 33-year-old guy who's played in some World Cups. You know, it's you know, young young players are gonna make mistakes. As excited as you are about the how well they're playing, I mean, Reggie had an amazing year. You know, but that tendency to dive in, you remember, was a problem at the beginning of the year, and he sort of corrected it for a long time. And maybe in a moment of pressure, he he lost it again. And Jesse, well, Jesse, we've had discussions about his mentality and decision making for 
uh, years now. In particular, this season, his his choices have been suspect at at best. So you know, it is some of the growing pains that you're going to have to get with young kids. I mean, even the best players in the world, when they're 16 to 18 to 22, and they're learning how to play the game, whatever age they break in, whatever that is, they're going to make mental mistakes, particularly for keepers now, because keepers don't get good until they're later in their career. They're not good until they're 29, 30 years old, because keeping above anything else is about mental side of the game, positioning and tactics. And even on the free kick, you could argue that Jesse wasn't ready. He got caught flat footed and didn't get that explosive cross the box, uh, uh, dive that he usually does. So he wasn't even close to that. Ball. And to your point all, all year in your breakdowns of the games, it, if man, if there was ever a game where his distribution out of the back really seemed to continuously uh, stall things for his own team last night was a great piece of evidence. Cause I, I stopped counting on how many uh, restarts where he just booted the ball straight out of bounds. Yeah. That in particular, his, his, his ball skills. Uh, no, I shouldn't say ball skills. It's not his ability to kick the ball. He kicks a good ball. It's, it's the, the choices he makes of when to play long, when to play short, just a lack of valuing of the ball. And, and as people frequently notice whenever, most of the time when he goes long, if the ball's not connecting with somebody, it's going out of bounds. So the Colorado game was a really great example of that when Tim Howard had like one incomplete pass the whole game. And Jesse had only had like five completed. You know, it's just, again, it comes back to experience, mindset, uh, intelligence of, of the game. Uh, I have no idea if Jesse's a smart guy or not, but you can be a dumb person and still have be smart about the game. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a question of, in his case, and they work with him on these things. I know I watch them work on these things. So I know it's a, it's a process with him. And we have to remember sometimes that even though he is not tw- is it 23, is that how old he is? That's still really young for a keeper. A keeper that starts at that age is actually pretty rare. Okay, so John, I'm going to ask you this question. Um, it, knowing that he's still 23, 24, he's really young, and that is young for a keeper, but you've also... Um, well, uh, I'll just ask the question. Where do you think the club's mind, Oscar, the Hunts, uh, is in this moment as to his standing as the starting keeper for this team? Are they going to stick with him in 2019, or you think they'll look for something else? I suppose that history would suggest they're not going to stick with him because it's been back and forth pretty much every season since he's been involved. I think it sort of depends on the market for Gonzalez because obviously he could he could go to Mexico and play as a Mexican player, not for Chivas because he's you know playing in the U.S., but for any other team would, would count as a as a Mexican player, which is a big bonus as a roster. Maybe there's a market for him there, but I'm not sure where else you put Jesse Gonzalez, maybe on the on your bench. But I don't know. I think that Jimmy Maurer certainly showed um you know, I think he showed during the year that he's good enough to be the starter. But is he that much of an upgrade over Jesse to say, okay, Mars is a starter now and, and Jesse's the guy and Jesse's on the bench? I'm not sure. I think he, he did struggle, but as we all know, goalkeepers often get better as they get older, even into their 30s. There's a lot of growth for Gonzalez still. Uh, some people have been mentioning maybe hit a ceiling. I don't necessarily think that's true. He might benefit from a change of scenery and, and from learning from different coaches, different methods. But I also think that he's totally capable of being uh, a good starter in MLS, maybe a top 10 starter, maybe top five um, in next season. I, I don't think he's that far off. I don't think he's that far behind what other MLS teams have, uh, despite some errors. 
But, you know, he, he will have to get better, needs to keep improving. And as a young goalkeeper, I mean, I guess that's kind of to be expected. So if he comes back, I think it sort of depends on a market. But if he does, I'm not so sure that it's not his job again, or, or at least an open competition between him and, and what FC Dallas already has. Dan, uh, including last night over the last four games, uh, Dallas's defense, which has had really been uh, the thing that was powering this team, was a uh, you know continuously good defensive efforts, has given up. I think I'm doing my math right, and I admit up front I'm pretty crappy at math. Eight goals in the last four games, and eight goals represents like. 15% of all the goals they gave up in the entirety of the season. Was there anything that you saw in the last four or five games that uh, led you to understand what was causing the cracks in the defense this season? I think we've seen uh, some players kind of acting out a little bit, whether that's tired legs or tired minds, uh, maybe even a little bit of losing faith in each other to a degree as uh, as the season seemed to unravel almost like last season. Uh, it's kind of hard to to be able to tell what's going on in inside the locker room. Uh, Buzz and I, uh, in the previous episode, talked a little bit about the concept that, you know, for all the objections uh, Oscar in particular and some of the players uh, put up at midseason, uh, when they were still in first place and had lost a couple of games and people in the media started asking questions about, is this a, a sequel to last season? Man, they really fought against that. When you go back and look, uh, uh, the, 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 the parallels between 2017 and 2018 are the difference, as we noted previously, is literally just converting two ties to two wins. Um, and ultimately this end of this season was worse than last. And, and I, and Oscar kind of hinted at that last night that he admitted that there was some parallels between the two. Does anybody, and I'll open this to anybody, uh, have any real ideas to why now two seasons in a row, this team seemed to kind of fall on its face after two really, really strong starts. I'll jump in. I think this is very, this isn't my style of answer. I would rather give you something based on uh, tactics or I think they need to add a player here or I think this is the issue that's happening in the locker room. What I, when I look at FC Dallas, what I don't see is a player who is uh, willing to kind of grab a game or, or, or even grab a, a teammate and shake it up and say, hey, this is not acceptable. We're going to win this game. We're not going to let this win that we have in our hands slip away against the Colorado Rapids. We're not going to concede again and let this draw turn into a loss. Uh, okay, we, we didn't convert a penalty against Sporting Kansas City. But we're not going to hang our heads and let them score another goal on it to make our challenge even more difficult. Um, I, I don't see a player who is, that has that fire and, and is willing leadership is like such a, a weasel word, but I don't. I guess I don't see that leadership, and, and I'm not sure where that's supposed to be coming from. I'm not sure if it's it's the fault of anyone, but I do think that this team needs someone to have a player. You know, I mentioned Valeri earlier for his skills, but I think he's also that guy in the locker room in some respects. Where if the Timbers start to you know let their shoulders slip a little bit, let their heads hang, he's saying no, that's not going to happen. And I'm not sure that this team has someone who's able to stop that from happening. So uh, it's not stats, it's not analysis or tactics. It's just when I look, I, I think that's one thing that they've been missing 
yeah, in the last two seasons. So yeah, uh, definitely to John's point, um, you know, someone like a Blas Perez or a Danny Hernandez who would stick the boot in if uh, eighty-five minutes are gone, there isn't a goal on the clock. I, but also, I think some of that direction does come from the bench. Um, you know, there was a good run of games. Um, the Columbus game certainly sticks out in my mind. Yeah, you know, Dallas seemed to have the to have the chances and then start pulling attacking players, bring on another defensive midfielder and just settled for the for the draw. You know, safe in the mind that at the time they were top of the table, uh, you know, and not converting those points uh, will lose you that first round bye and will eventually get you out of the playoffs. I think it's a valid point. You know, I, when you when you go back to the early days of this franchise, Leonel Alvarez set the tone for a decade. He was only here two years. And 10 years later, people still conducted themselves and, and played the way uh, that they learned from him. You know, even Oscar was uh, picked up things like that. You know, Daniel Hernandez is another great example. Uh, I have a feeling uh, that David Ferreira was probably a lot like that. You know, there, there is a something to be said that there's a lot of nice guys on this team and, and, and maybe they could use a guy that is a grab the game by the neck kind of person. Um, I think that's a perfectly valid reason. I, I also sometimes wonder, um, you know, Oscar's a guy who only knows how to do things 100%. You know, he's not a guy that can be like, we're going we're gonna to be halfway there for this particular game. And, and I think that's one of the reasons he has a little trouble resting guys, a little trouble maybe getting in the kids as much as some people might like, is that for him, and this was magnified, of course, by missing the playoffs last year by one point, for him it's every single game is as important as every other game. And so from the beginning of the year, they go 100% all the way, full effort to win every game. Start of the season, bam, out of the gate, win, 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 win. And as the season drags on, it may be that that mentality from Oscar somehow doesn't get absorbed as much as the season goes on. And guys may be just sort of like, again, this game is 100%. You know what I mean? So maybe there's some slight drop off in terms of like your reception of that message. Maybe if you're 100% all the way when the middle of the season comes and other teams are making adjustments, other teams are bringing in guys, you're already at max throttle and don't have another gear to go to perhaps. Which so I don't want to I don't mean that to be as a criticism of Oscar because I cannot complain about a guy who wants that goes 100% effort all the time. That's the Bobby Ryan method. You know, it's it's that kind of work ethic and that kind of effort and that kind of mentality is phenomenal. But I just wonder sometimes if maybe it's not necessary to go 100% from the get-go of the start of the season. Maybe you could start at 75% with some things that are trouble spots that you're working on that you can build and build and build as the season goes on. Just some thoughts. Uh, John, if you had to, if you ran across a friend of yours from Mexico or from some uh, other place that was soccer knowledgeable but knew nothing about, uh, knew very little about FC Dallas or Major League Soccer, how would you explain uh, Dallas's 2018 season to them? Uh, I think to anyone, I would just they never, they never looked good. As as someone, I think you, Peter, pointed out they kind of bristled at some questions after, you know, some results started going the wrong way saying, no, it's not going to be like 2017. 
And to their credit, they made the playoffs and had a very respectable point total. 57 points is nothing to sneeze at. But it, it never seemed to be a convincing team. Even when, even when Acosta, Diaz, etc. were around, I, I don't think we ever looked at FC Dallas on the field. And it, it never had the feel, feel of that 2016 team. It never had a feel of this team. This team will win trophies. I think it started at the CONCACAF Champions League exit. And from there, sort of, they, they played well. They got results in the league, but they, but they weren't convincing necessarily. So I, I would say that was a big thing. One thing that tactically, you know, as someone who knows the game, I think I would say uh, they definitely stick in their formation. And I'm not sure that's always uh, suited them. When you look at a, a player like Maxi Rudy being sort of shoehorned into a different role, he wasn't asked to play a 10 traditionally necessarily, but sort of a false 10 where he was kind of mostly a playmaker, but also still asked to, to, to be a forward. I think that's difficult for him to pull off. I don't think that's his best role at all. And the two midfielders in front of the, the center backs, Vic played well, Jacory played well during the season. I think they allowed the organization to take a risk and trade Kellen. But neither of them really, neither Vic or, or Grezzo is going to get forward and provide you any sort of late runners or, or anything like that. So I think that's something where this team, they missed having someone in that role. They, you know, Michael Barrios can bomb down the side and beat his defender 10 times a game. But if he has one player that he's aiming at in the box nine out of the 10 times, he's not going to have very much success. So I, I think those are the things that would kind of stand out to me as, a, as an overview. It was a team that, that definitely had identity. You know, they, they were good defensively, strong in the counterattack, but ultimately lacked finishing. And I think that comes down to some of the details I just mentioned. I remember, and this triggered from what you said, John, and Peter, you'll remember this. Last offseason, Oscar talked about maybe it was time to sort of tear down and rebuild the team a little bit, maybe to move on from some people. And then we watched as they rebuilt the defense. Jettison, a lot of older players brought in some young, young uh, guys, brought in some veteran guys, brought in Reggie. And you and I talked about quite frequently, and I think I did this in public spaces at, at two, that we expected this season to be one of sort of questioning where, okay, is the defense better? And then we'll get to midseason, and, and then we'll sort of see. And I thought that they would probably finish third or fourth, but I thought they would be lower, and then they would sort of rebound up instead of being higher and coming back down. And I think that plan was in place. That plan was there to, okay, we'll, we'll build the defense and then we'll build off of that. We'll play off of that defense and we'll see how the offense goes when we get to the window. Well, when they got to the window, they then got, uh, you know, forced by Diaz and forced by Acosta to make uh, some moves and forced by Ned Yalkov too. So they had, to, they had three players they had to re- get rid of and or replace that they weren't expecting to rather than just being able to go out and try and improve what they already had, now we're trying to just tread water. So to, to John's point that the team never looked really all that convincing, even when they were play, uh, getting results, that's kind of really what happened is that they kind of mid-course were like, oh my gosh, we're, we're falling apart. We got to try and glue this thing back together. And so they did the best they could with Kellen's asking to be traded and got at least some kind of forward to see if that would work out. They, you can't replace Diaz without spending a million dollars. We're not going to do that. So you know how they are. They're going to bring in a 21-year-old prospect again, trying to find the next Diaz who will develop over three or four years. And they ended up actually being able to replace Ned Yalkov with a player better than Ned Yalkov. So they never really got to build the way they wanted to build. And as John says, it really was just sort of half of a process the whole time. They never really – 
got the team together that they that wanted to, I think, that when their hands got forced by players departing, which is the third straight season there's been some transfer drama midseason. Castillo three years ago, last year, Uriti and, and uh, Barrios, even though they didn't actually leave, there still was a ton of drama. And then now this year you have Acosta and Diaz both saying, I'm out. So it, it can be hard to maintain some focus and hard to maintain consistency and put, put a good product on the field when you're having to repair a team midseason. But Dan, this team was in first place for so much of the season. Um, and yet, to John's point, and I certainly was one that was constantly saying this, is that I, I, I didn't think they looked like a first-place team. W- why is it I feel so uh, crushed and disappointed about last night's result, uh, considering what we just all talked about? Well, two weeks ago, this was the team that was first place in the Western Conference. Uh, you know, coming into the... like. Buzz mentioned, you know, coming into the season, it was a rebuilding year. Uh, Buzz mentioned maybe finishing third or fourth. I kind of thought, great, maybe Nick sixth and uh, try your luck in the knockout round, not, you know, sprint out of the gates, then realize it's a marathon, limp over the line, and then be disappointed because you're hosting a knockout round. Uh, yeah, it, it was such a dramatic fall late on. Losing those last three games, going from, you know, quote unquote, the biggest game in franchise history to seal the the third season of in four of sixty points and then fail miserably. It goes with you know, it goes to show with the way marketing was and and sales that they didn't have a plan B. If if the team aren't going to have a plan B for how they market the game and how they sell the tickets. The fans sure as hell aren't going to have a plan B on their expectations. Uh, John, let's kind of move to uh, some of the larger questions at hand. Um, first off, is it weird for anybody else that um, uh, it, since the press conferences after the games have moved to the new facility, that Dan and or Clark Hunt has taken up sitting in the front row of those press conferences? Am, am I just reading too much into that or is, there, is that weird to anybody else? I don't know what the it's it it's new. I personally would like, and, and the hunts can obviously do whatever they please, but I would rather have a functioning internet than anyone sitting in the front row. Uh, that would just be just shout out journalist request right there. But uh, yeah, I'm not sure if it's if it's supposed to send a message. I don't know what the message it's sending is. Well, they don't make themselves available for comment either, uh, and it's not like they're sitting alongside Oscar. They're just sitting in the audience, and it's just, I don't know, I'd never seen them do that before, and I noticed it the, the last couple of times I've been at the press conference, and it just seems weird to me. I, again, maybe I'm just making much to do out of nothing. But when it comes to the hunts and, and a lot of the talk about what's going on, a lot of the noise and stuff that I read on social media today was this, uh, the, the two constants were uh, either people who feel like Perea's uh, coaching decisions are to blame and or... Um, it's the fact that the hunts don't want to spend any money. And one of the things that I don't think people really realize is that the hunts have accelerated their spending um, dramatically over the last two years. And they're now solidly in the middle of the packed, uh, pack in terms of salary spending at like $9.4 million. But 
isn't really the difference. What's going to come down on this team is the, is that they're kind of stuck in between two identities, which is this team that wants to kind of grow its roster from its Academy yet also be balanced in how they spend their money, which means they're not spending large sums of money in transfer dollars to bring in, you know, what we would consider to be an A grade player. John, is that a fair assessment on my part? I think it is. And, and also perhaps, you know, I think an optimistic view would be to say the Academy project started so recently, you're only now seeing it start to bear fruits, right? Some of the most prized products are in the U20 tournament right now. Even a guy like Kellen, who's kind of one of the first graduates, he's still, even on the, the world soccer stage, a, a relatively young player. He's getting there, to, but, you know, relatively young, right? So maybe in 10 years, that isn't as much of an issue. The academy is producing so many players that you can have seven to nine quality homegrown players, you know, MLS starting caliber, and then supplement those with two or three signings. But right now you're in this weird interim period where the academy is producing some fruits. We're seeing some players who are ready to play in MLS, some guys who are right there on the border, but you still need to supplement that somehow if you're going to win games. As good as FC Dallas's academy has been, you're not gonna get. Uh, you're not gonna get results if you just played eleven homegrowns right now. So you have to supplement that from somewhere, and we've seen that mostly with the South American signings, many of whom have worked out. So I think that's a fair assessment to say that they're sort of in between. But I do think, Peter, that it gets. Look, the hunts are certainly not Arthur Blank style, right? They're not spending as much as a team like Atlanta United is, and I think Atlanta United has shown very. Very, they laid bare that if you do spend money and you spend it sort of semi wisely, you are going to get victories. You are going to get results. They're not spending money on that scale, but they have increased their spending. They are willing, it seems, to open the pocketbook a little more than they have been in the past. And I think it all started, you know, prior to the 2016 season when they thought, okay, maybe the time is right to win some championships. So I think it's a pretty fair assessment, and maybe it's just a weird blending of the team right now as they look to get that academy really, really pumping out players instead of just kind of the trickle that we have right now. I think if you look at FC Dallas, where the place that most people would say they fall apart, as Peter just mentioned, is the the high caliber, big dollar, fancy signing. And they got so stung by Danielson that I, I don't know when they're going to overcome that hurdle and sign that million dollar player. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they're the only MLS team that doesn't have one ML, one million dollar player. Now they have some guys that are close. And as you say, they have elevated their spending. So, um, you know, for the, for the hunts, their spending is all in the academy, as John was talking about. Even the oldest guy, Uola, is only 26, and he's the first ever academy signing, the homegrown signing they made. So um, that's where their big investment is. That's where they're spending their money. Well, that in the Hall of Fame, of course. But, you know, they, they, do, they do consistently that, want to win. You know, people complain and say they don't want to win. I don't, I don't think that's true at all. I think they want to win badly. I just think that they're trying to do it uh, the way they do it with the Chiefs. You know, they're not, they're not trying to be the Yankees or the Atlanta Uniteds. They're trying to be uh, a smart, invested team, invest in their academy, invest in young players from South America, which for their purposes, they treat just like a homegrown. Even in the draft, they try and go, they get, grab these GAs, they grab homegrowns ahead of the draft and cherry pick guys out like your Cannons and your Reeves. So it, it's not that they don't want to sign big time players. It's just that they get been so burned in the past by the one guy they really thought was the answer that I don't know how long it's going to take them to go against their own natures again. That, that may take quite a while. 
Yeah, I, I, I'm not quite sure that this is a function of being burned in the past as much as it is trying to just watch a bottom line. But I, I've, you know, I personally feel like if if this team would embrace what its strength is, which is its academy, and it, and maybe it's too soon to do this, um, but really throw a team out there that is, you know, especially in, at midfield, powered by the academy. Um, and they didn't make the playoffs, uh, that would be okay with me. My my expectations would be vastly different about this team if, in fact, it really was a team that was powered from the academy and, and a larger percentage of the players starting were kids from this area uh, that had made it through the system. But because that's not the setup and they are going out and trying to tell us that they're you know efforting to try to win MLS Cup, it just feels almost it's not like a full effort because they're certainly never going to be Arthur Blank to John's point. They're never going to be um, uh, the Seattle uh, Sounders. And I'm not even sure they're going to be, you know, um, uh, I'm trying to think, you, you know, they're never going to pull off a Rooney deal like uh, DC United. So I, it, there's this weird middle ground this team seems to be stuck in. And I feel like what they need to do is they either need to, you know, go in one pool with all the, you know, and, and do as many kids as possible, or they need to realize if they're ever going to win this thing, they can use a few kids here and there. And to John's point, they're just going to have to ramp up the quality of the foreign players they bring into the club. Yeah. I think if you were to roll out a team with five or six homegrowns in it, you would there be almost no way you're going to make the playoffs. If you if you're gonna roll those kids in there, but would but okay, but but that's but that's fine. Uh, but would that be such a terrible thing? I mean, John, Dan, would you guys go watch this team week in and week out if it was had Cervania and Pomical and and uh, you know some older veteran HGs like Arudi and Cannon? Or, well, Cannon's probably a hard example, but you know what I'm saying. I realize it may not be an, an MLS playoff team, but it, it would be a, a really interesting story, one, to market, and two, uh, in some ways, I think it would be more entertaining to watch this team versus what we dealt with all this year. I would have quite liked them to uh, have finished off 2017 like that and gone, you know what, cut the losses, go uh, forget the playoffs, give Palmer Carl a run, give Ferreira a little run, uh, you know, that could have been good time for Cannon to to get uh, a little more than twenty seconds in MLS play, and uh, you know, really give the fans something to look forward to, something to get behind with local young talent that was built up in this club, and kind of you know create that narrative and get that experience, and then build towards 2018, 2019, and you know, and every season after that. All right, so uh, I I feel like this part of the conversation is something that we would save or will save for a future episode because it's a much longer conversation. But we may not always have John, the great John Arnold, and his uh, Latino accent with us. <laughs> uh, John, uh, what do you think, or how do you think this team looks different in 2019? Uh, you're definitely going to see some changes. I think that. We talked about will there be kind of full makeover, and in some ways, I think you could say there already has been. Um, but I think there will be several players that are back, familiar faces that I think people are talking about maybe not being there. But sort of, uh, I think there's definitely going to be some changes. Um, 
if I were FC Dallas, I would definitely keep. I would try and keep the back line together. I think they're. Mo- I think everyone's kind of under contract. Maybe an offer comes in for Reggie. Who knows? But I think that that base of the team was solid. Going forward, I'm almost. I would almost be willing to take a posture of anyone can go, um, just because of the disappointment that we've talked about and the fact that I'm not sure these players have really distinguished themselves. Lamar. Does he give you that much more quality than Mosquera? I would argue that no. Sure, he scored a few more goals, but some of them have been in pretty fortunate places. Uh, I think a lot of guys, a lot of guys are going to be evaluated and, and the evaluation's going to come back pretty harsh. They should have some room to work with, though, because uh, like I said, I mean, I think there's some guys who are going to be moving who are going to free up international spots who are potentially, I would assume, at least one DP spot freed up. Um what they do with that, who knows? But I think you're definitely going to see uh, some changes. And and look, maybe people want, oh, a full reboot, a, a total makeover right now. But like I said, I, I think that already has happened in some respects. You look at this team without Mara Diaz, without Kellen Acosta, um, without and even going back to 2016, you know, without Fabian Castillo, you know, most of the members, the, the kind of critical players from that uh, Supporters Shield and the U.S. Open Cup winning team have moved on. So... Uh, I think you already have seen a makeover, so I, I'm not sure it's going to be get everyone out of here because I think there's already been a process in place, but I think there will definitely be some, some big changes. You mentioned the defense, John, and I just want to make a note. I I personally feel like uh, Rito Ziegler has been one of the best acquisitions in this club's history. He was outstanding this season, uh, uh, both on and off the field. I thought he was great, and, and we haven't spent enough time talking about him uh, which is probably a good thing for a center, uh, a center defender. And I, I don't know if everybody else feels the same, but I just thought overall he's probably he's one of the most outstanding additions uh, from a foreign source this club's ever made. Well, and, and just the way he partnered with Hedges so quickly, their communication seemed to be very good almost right off the bat. They sort of had a not a revolving door necessarily, but certainly a door that opened and closed at least once at left back. Uh, and that that process didn't seem to cause issues. People were panicking about Figueroa last night, and I get that. He's 35. He hasn't been great in his recent cameos, but it wasn't really an issue last night. That certainly wasn't where the problems came from, and I think some of that goes down to Ziegler. You saw that when either Hedges nor Ziegler were in the lineup, when one of those guys was gone, it, it was it was issues. So I definitely think that he has been a, a really solid addition. So, Dan, do you think this team needs a uh, full makeover or just uh, clean the windshield and uh, put some air in the tires? Definitely some air in the tires and clean the windshield. Um, you know, as, as John alluded to, that, that back line's been pretty solid for the most part and any great team's built off its back line. Uh, I would love to see a little con- bit of consistency in goal. Uh, you know, we know Jesse's going to get a long leash, uh, but we're four years into that and he's never held a, a starting spot for a particularly long time. Uh you know, that does kind of play into just how solid the back line can be. Certainly in the midfield, right now, no eight, no real 10. You're going to kind of want to see some changes there and something that can kind of play into Maxi and, and Don Baji's strengths. Okay, so you, you mention it, and, and this is the one thing we haven't talked about, and anybody can pick up with run with this, but isn't the most glaring thing this team needs because almost everything wrong with this team somehow, in some way, tactically, 
or uh, skill-wise always goes back to the fact that they've yet to fill in the number nine role. Isn't that still the one most glaring, most major thing they've got to fix think- in this offseason is get a legit proper number nine? I don't think there's any question. We've been saying that for a couple of years, though. You know, it's like they've been after a nine. I mean, if you look back at Oscar's five years here, just for example, uh, the leading scorer for his team has been over 10 goals only twice. Ryuti last year and Blas Perez back in 2014. So really, since Perez left, we haven't had a number nine. And Oscar's never had a 15 to 20 goal scores. 17 goals is a goal every other game. That's kind of the benchmark for like a pure goal scorer you have to go back all the way to 2009 actually to find somebody like that with Cunningham here Jeff Cunningham and Cooper the year before it's like that's the elephant in the room if they don't address that problem then you're going to get the exact same team even if you change pieces and I agree with John and Dan both that this team doesn't need an overall it just needs some tweaks needs to jettison some contracts bring in a couple of new faces bring in a couple of young kids playing like Reggie but if you don't get a nine, you're going to get the exact same season you have for five years under Oscar. He's going to grind out some results. He's going to glue it all together. He's going to get 16 different guys scoring like you had this year. They're going to win a bunch of games. But if you don't get a legit frontline striker, you're never going to compete for an MLS Cup without that. So, John, I uh, this was something that uh, I had. a Actually, Steve Davis brought this stat up on Twitter. Dallas, of all the teams in the playoffs, is the only playoff team without a 10-goal striker, uh, which I thought was a stunning stat. And really, the most telling thing, which was, if Oscar Perea in this team don't change anybody else out on the team other than having uh, a Martinez or a... Um, uh, uh, David Villa or any list, any of the, the better strikers in the league going on right now that play number nine, I, certainly this team doesn't bounce out in the first round and it's possibly even a supporter shield, uh, threat this year, right? Yeah, probably. It's interesting. Buzz brings up the fact that this has been sort of the cry for quite some time. You have to sign a nine or you have to sign a star forward this off season. I haven't always been on that, that bandwagon, that train. Uh, this year, I'll be the conductor. It's absolutely the biggest need. It's 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 a hundred percent what the team needs, and and I do think it makes the difference between a, a solid team, which I think FC Dallas is, finished mid table, made the playoffs, lost a knockout round game, sort of bad luck, call it what you will. Uh, it makes the difference between a solid team and a team that's making that first round bye, that's potentially fighting for the supporters' shield, and that could actually lift a trophy. So. It's tough because they don't grow on trees. They tried to pick one in Christian Coleman, who didn't work out. So maybe looking in the league could be an option. It's not not easy to get a guy like that from trade, but I, you know, I've heard that there have been some things on the table for players that that do find the back of the net regularly in MLS. Maybe it's from you know back, heading back to South America and see what you find. But they they have to bring in someone, and maybe even you know spending a little more money and going. A proven scorer from Liga Mekis, a proven scorer from uh, the Netherlands, like a like a like a, you know somebody like a Jiang from from a PSV or something like that. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know, but I think it is absolutely the biggest the biggest issue. And and you know, I, I guess the the pushback I get I give is that it's not going to guarantee that suddenly you're a supporter shield contender, but it's absolutely going to make a difference in how the team functions. 
Well, in a lot of the games against some of the league's worst teams, and I'm thinking specifically of the two <laughs> shocking losses to San Jose and the uh, only getting uh, one point in the two games against the Rapids this season, uh, if you had gotten, if you had won those four games, which and which, if I remember correctly, we were those were four games were epitomized uh, the frustration of finishing. Uh, they would have ended up essentially right with about 70 points uh, uh, and would have been threatening. It, well, they, at the very least, they would have been atop of the West. And, and that that's really the small margin of difference that I there, for so many things that we pick on about this team at the end of the day, it just having a guy up there that can finish like so many of the other teams have is, in my mind, the biggest thing that separates this team from everybody else. I think uh, you also kind of have to look at, we've kind of danced around it a little bit. The Hunt's MO is the bottom line. It's investments have to have a return. You know, um, Grace, they were willing to spend a million and a half on a guy who'd just been relegated from Bundesliga, hadn't had a particularly good time. But if you can flip him, you're making five, six million. uh, strikers are the premium position and finding a proven striker who's not gonna break that you know magical glass ceiling of a million dollar salary is kind of tough um you know uh, people used to shout on the rooftops about cuba torres or chiharito but you know that was never going to be a reality with the the amount of investiture that would have taken now, someone like Albert Elise, 22, really, uh, you know, he's under a million dollar salary, you know, and a, a little run with uh, Honduras or, or with Houston, and suddenly they're looking at huge profit on him. That's the kind of thing that the Hunts would consider absolute gold. Okay, but you know this is an interesting conversation because it's it's not dissimilar to conversations that we have um, about Jerry Jones and the Cowboys about the way that they do their business is the you know is frustrating many times. Um, this is the way to your point, Dan, that Dan and Clark run this. It's a bottom line business. Uh, it's been the way that they've successfully run the Chiefs now as a family for I don't know, is it fifty years probably? Um, and and I certainly don't think it's ever going to change. So, is there a, a path? Is there an alternate path or, or a way of? Is it a function of being better at scouting? Because this is one of the questions I've always wondered. If if we've gone two seasons without getting a number nine, is it a lack a of scouting, which is Clavio's problem? Is it b a checkbook problem, which is Dan and Clark, or is it c that Oscar's really really picky about the kind of person that he wants in in, in that role? Uh, because he wants a you know do it my way or don't come here at all kind of guy, or is it a mix of all three of those things? And is is there any either of those three these th- those three things that are likely to change uh, in helping them find an, an actual winner number nine? It's definitely uh, a mix of of all all of the above. Uh, you know, we saw wasn't a striker, but um, wow, his, he was that irrelevant. I've forgotten his name. The uh, Costa Rican chap, the left back, you know, came in. Oscar didn't really like his attitude, and we've never seen him since. He's been out on loan with uh, Kieto. Ch- Chala. Chala, that's the one. Uh, you know, but he's he's 
played for the national team since then. Uh, but you know, your face does have to fit um, in a system and uh, and with the coaches and and the players. Um, in terms of scouting, we do know that that the club extensively scout. They've uh, brought in Chui Vera to lead up the national scout, uh, international scouting division. We've seen uh, Oscar's brother running about all over South America. I mean, is it a case of trusting in in those scouts? Is it a case of you know asking preliminary questions and just not liking you know not having enough belief and knowledge to take the plunge? But then we've also seen Christian Coleman two million for a guy that had never played as a lone striker, never had a record as a scorer, but. You know they they were willing to take the plunge on him. Ibazan was just down scouting in South America too. I think that's always going to be sort of the like I said, like in that interim where you you can't stock your team with you're starting eleven with homegrowns. I think that's always going to be the well. And look, I, I get the frustration, but Christian Coman also signature wanted by teams in Brazil, Mexico, and I think even Argentina. You know, you're looking at a player who okay, he didn't work out. But it was a it was a risk and it was money that they spent hoping that it would, right? Obviously they wanted it to work out. Um, I think in they have some advantages in South America and that they have a lot of contacts there, they know a lot of people there, they they watch uh, closely there. Um, and a lot of South American players have have worked out really well in MLS. We just saw Diego Valeri on the Toyota Stadium pitch. We're gonna watch Atlanta United in the playoffs after getting a bye, even New York Red Bulls, same deal. They won the Supporters' Shield based in no small part thanks to how they combined homegrown talent with players they brought in from South America. So I think they've had some misses, and that can absolutely be criticized, but it's not to me it's not the wrong idea. I think it's they've also had some successes, right? Castillo, Diaz, uh, those were, were big pickups that were in the same vein where it wasn't guaranteed to work out and did. So I think we're going to keep seeing that, honestly. That, that's sort of going to be the well they keep going back to. Yeah, one thing that will be important to watch we haven't mentioned yet is the Bayern Munich uh, arrangement. They came real close to pulling a number nine out of Bayern Munich at the start of the season. It only fell apart because Bayern wanted to bring a player in to replace him, and the guy they had lined up fell through. So they ended up not loaning out the guy to Dallas. So I don't know if they're going to go backwards in time to that guy. I'm just saying that relationship has been pretty good. And it's also a pipeline that may actually someday prove a dividend of a guy coming the other way, not just Chris Richards over to them. Uh, anything else you guys would like to add or uh, close out this particular? I have one thing I want to say. I, I just want to not lose sight of the fact that, and I think we deserve, the Hunts deserve some credit for this. And so does Oscar. And so does um, Clavijo up till now is that over the history of this team in particular, the last five years or so, they've consistently been, one of the better teams in the league. They consistently put a pretty good competitive product on the field. They, they've made the playoffs 16 out of 23 years. They're the second team to win 300 games. They're the third team to win 100 road games. You know, they, they, they are not terrible ever. They're usually okay. Since Southlake, they've been pretty okay to pretty good or great all the time. And sometimes I think we should deserve, they deserve some credit for the fact that Generally speaking, they give you a good team to watch. Yeah, but John, why 
<laughs> despite the, that level of success and all of that going on, why is it unfair to insist that they shouldn't be winning MLS Cup after all this time and all of the good point collection and stuff uh, that we've seen over the last five, six, seven years? I think there was a moment where, and that moment was 2016, where FC Dallas had everything that needed to win MLS Cup. I think that the introduction of expansion teams like Atlanta and LAFC, and you would assume teams like Miami coming into the league later, have changed the game. I think the MLS is a different animal now. I think it's going to be very, very difficult to win MLS Cup. Maybe you could put a period right there. And it should be, right? But I also think it's going to be very difficult to to not spend money. Uh, truly, Atlanta, to me, has set, and even if they don't win MLS Cup, and I know they didn't lift the Supporters' Shield, to me, they've really set a new standard, and, it, and a lot of it was just money. Sure, scouting, really savvy decisions. But they hired Tata Martino, which wasn't cheap, I guarantee, and then they said, which players do you want? brought in some players that were, were also not cheap. Some of the players they missed on were not cheap options. And now you're looking at potentially they sell Miguel Amiron, and now they're trying to, going to bring in Titi Martinez. It, FC Dallas, look, if they do compete with that, huge credit. And they, and they still can beat Atlanta United in games, right? I think just over the long haul of the season, that talent and the money that that talent gets will win out. MLS has changed. It's a new era now. I think even from the past, like I said, two, three years, it's different. So um, it's going to be a challenge if they want to keep running the team like this. And maybe, Peter, you're right, and the Fruits of the Academy have to start working out, and that's when you can win MLS Cup. Right now, I think, and Buzz is totally right to, to say this, before the season they set our expectations to win MLS Cup. Maybe that's what they say before the season again in 2019, but maybe with sort of a wink and a nudge because – Things are different. We're starting young players. We're giving Cervania a chance in the midfield. I don't know what I don't know what it's going to look like. I'm sure you guys will get to it on, on future editions. But I think that maybe the expectations have to be adjusted. And if this team is going to come out and say we're going to win MLS Cup, they're going to have to do something to back it up. That's more than what they've been doing recently. That's the reality. Yeah, I think I think he's completely correct. You know that discussion of uh, that happened maybe about a month ago or that the, the rule change that was floated around was the change in the way the third DP was going to work. You know, some of that was uh, for lack of a better term, the quote unquote small market franchises probably fighting back a little bit. You know, they don't want to have, uh, you know, if you're, if you're the hunts, if you're FC Dallas, if you're Minnesota, if you're Columbus, if you're Austin, if you're RSL, you don't want to, have to play teams that like Atlanta that have three players that are each worth $15 million. You don't even have a single player worth a million dollars. So the, that's going to be the, when, when this league founded in 96, one of the things I talked to everyone that talked to me about the league, I always expressed to them, the thing that most is most important about the survival of this league is a proper business model. Cause you don't need five years. You don't need 10 years. Even 20 is not enough. You, we're starting to see it. You need 20 plus years, 30 years, 40 years for a cultural change to happen and this whole country to embrace soccer. So if at 20 years, all of a sudden we're breaking the business model and letting people like Atlanta and LAFC and to a certain extent Seattle and to a certain extent Toronto come in and spend five, 10, 15 million dollars on a player. Those are your Yankees. Those are your Dodgers. You know, have you broken the model? 
there was going to be some pushback from a small small market. I'm going to call Dallas a small market because of the hunts, even though it's the number five media market. You know, there's going to be some pushback. You're going to have, the next few years. You're going to have to see how this breaks out, see how it changes. But I think John's right. I don't think you can put the genie back in the bottle. Like once you let people spend what you they wanted to spend above the cap, above that DP with those DPs, I think that changes everything. And the GAM and the TAM, which is insanely complicated when it doesn't need to be, you know, all that is going to be something the hunts are not going to be are going to be very very uncomfortable with. But if they want to keep up, they're going to have to do some of that because right now they're not good enough to be IX. So they want to be. But right now they're not that they're not there yet. Well, uh, once again, FC Dallas won Portland Timbers two. The 2018 season uh, comes to an unfortunate close. Uh, I'd love to thank John Arnold from Goal.com and uh, the Dallas Morning News for joining us, John. It was great having you on the podcast. Thanks very much for your insight. My pleasure. And your awesome way of pronouncing his uh, Latin uh, uh, Spanish words. I I wish I could do that. Uh, we'll get you that pronunciation guide for the 2019 roster, whatever it looks like. Uh, did you did you use Rosetta Stone? <laughs> no, I I took. You classes. moved to Mexico, didn't you? I took classes, spoke it pretty well, and then moved to Mexico, and that that was the big uh, the big jump. That will do it. All right. Uh, speaking of accents, thank you, Dan Crook, for your time today and your thoughts. <sighs> it's been a long, hard season, hasn't it? <laughs> you sound so tired and put out and defeated. Well, yeah, yeah. Awesome. And uh, Buzz Carrick, thanks. Uh, You can find Buzz's work at the Dallas Morning News and at thirddegree.net, and also follow him on Twitter at thirddegreenet. All right, uh, that one wraps this up. I have no idea if we'll ever do another one of these, Buzz. Um, Maybe, or I don't know. We'll figure it out, right? I think we should, at the very least, we should do one more that sets up what we think is going to happen over the winter, what the plan is going to be, what what the team's going to look like next year. Hmm. Okay. Can we do one where we just speculate what the new away jersey is going to look like? Yeah, actually, I have some thoughts about that. I think we could have fun with that. All right. John, are you a kit guy at all? I don't know this about you. I enjoy them aesthetically, but... uh... With all respect to both you gentlemen, you guys kind of take it to a different level. I'll probably I'll probably sit out that pod. <laughs> we are a bit knowing about it. All right, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, enjoy the off season, and uh, yeah, don't forget your rubbers. <laughs> <laughs>